What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Marshall Media Montage, episode 118. <clears throat> I'm going to break it down for you. So, games and movie reviews are the, about the first 25 minutes. Uh, I talk horror films as well as uh, games and so forth for the first 25 minutes. It's all MSN. It's three different reviews. If you want to skip ahead, that's the first 25 minutes. And then right after that, for about 10 minutes, I talk about two smutty films. Yeah, I apologize in advance. I watched Bikini Car Wash Company and Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights was actually really good. I, I had a good time watching that. I'd never watched it before. And then after that, about the 35-minute mark, if you want to jump ahead and hear me talk about fantasy films, six of them for about 40 minutes, that's where you can go to. So reviews, first 25 minutes, some corny, smutty films for 10 minutes after that, or 36-minute mark if you want to listen to me talk about fantasy films. But before I get into uh, actually showing you guys the episode, I'm going to be talking briefly about... Uh, I've been playing uh, Paper Mario 64. So I had a buddy of mine that I've grown up with for the past, uh, the past about 20 years uh, from high school. We've been surfing together and playing sports together and so forth. And uh, he was like, dude, you know you play Switch? Like, hey, here's my uh, you know Switch online. And I was like, what? So he hooked it up because a lot of my uh, stuff is in storage and I have my Switch. So he gave me his Switch online stuff and I just you know loaned him a couple bucks. And I have, what, access to, obviously, Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, Super Nintendo, Nintendo, and uh, N64. It's obviously not the entire library, but there are some games that I've been wanting to play. And I've never played Paper Mario before. But it's basically like Legend of the Seven Stars on Super Nintendo, but obviously a paper version of that with some polygonal uh, aspects and sprite work that is on N64. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. I've already beaten, I believe, the Koopa Bros boss. I'm in the dry, dry desert ruins now. Um, it, it's, it's similar gameplay. Like if you time it right, you can do more damage. If you time it right, they do less damage on you. There's special effects, uh, that include, you know, obviously a quirky, goofy comedy, uh, dialogue. It's just, it's a lot of fun. If you've never played Paper Mario before and you have Switch online, I would recommend checking it out. It, it's a really fun, easy to get into, uh, RPG. <clears throat> I didn't expect to enjoy it as much as I am. And I'm glad that I'm playing it. Now I want to get Paper Mario uh, Thousand Year Door on a GameCube. But that's definitely up there in price, if not $100, if not more. But uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy about it. So anyway, here it is, episode 118. Like I said, I was talking and playing Paper Mario. Recommended. Highly, highly recommend it. Oh, I also was playing Sin and Punishment, which is an on-rails shooter that came out in Japan only. That is also on the N64 online. And I like it more than I think uh, Panzer Dragoon, which I have one and two on Sega Saturn. I, I think it's much better, actually. I'm not knocking Panzer Dragoon. I'm sure it was great at the time. They are fun, but I just, I was blown away. I, Sin and Punishment is a lot of fun. It has an arcade feel to it. But there you have it, episode 118. Like I said, games reviews, first 25 minutes. 10 minutes after that, smutty, sorry. And then at the 36 minute mark, you have six fantasy films I'm gonna be talking about. All right, everybody, let's go. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Marshall Media Montage, episode 118. Before I get into two, uh, I guess, smutty, slutty films, that I, uh, just like, I'm laughing because that's kind of what they are, in a sense. One is an actual movie. The other one is basically like a softcore porn for like an hour and a half <laughs> uh, from the early 90s. That's pretty bad, but I decided to watch it anyway. And then uh, the rest of the uh, episode, I'm going to be talking about these fantasy films from the 80s that... I just had a sudden urge to just watch these fantasy movies that were just awesome. They were corny, but a lot of fun for what they are. But before I get into any of that, I haven't done any uh, ranks and reviews of certain things via MSN decides to generate an algorithm for me. And it's like, 
what, what do I have right here? So best 25 uh, first-person shooters on PS1. And in no particular order, let me uh, take a look at what we got here. Medal of Honor, uh, GameFAQs rating 3.85 out of 5, released 1999, October 31st. So happy Halloween to those of you in 1999. You got Medal of Honor. And I've seen these games played. It's not really my cup of tea, but I'm sure at the time it was a big, big deal. Uh, let me get a sip of my monster here. Ah, not sponsored by them, but hey, sponsor me, monster. Why not? All right, Doom. Doom's a classic. I mean, I remember playing this on uh, my Super Nintendo back in the day, the red cartridge, and I always felt like uh, Exodus's song Toxic Waltz sounded like the music that was in this game, so I've always gravitated towards Exodus for that reason alone, I suppose, and then obviously my love for them growed. Uh, growed. Yeah, growed's a fucking word. Grown. Past tense, excuse me. But I mean, I definitely remember Doom. Also on the PC, and of course, uh, Wolfenstein 3D, but a uh, GameFAQs 4.5 out of 5, or 4.05, but I uh, released 1993, uh, obviously before the PS1 dropped in 95, uh, it came out on a, what, PC, and then a Super Nintendo, of course, then they had the uh, Sega 32X, which also came out, but yeah, Doom's a classic, of course. Uh, Medal of Honor Underground, I'm not even going to touch that one, because I don't really know too much about Medal of Honor, to be honest with you guys. Jumping Flash, I've heard of this one. Uh, a robotic rabbit suitably named Robbit. The game differentiated itself from other shooters on the console by combining first-person gameplay with platforming. I vaguely remember seeing this one. I don't really recall playing it, so I don't really have much of a say in it, but Doom is classic. Of course, Quake. Quake being another one. Quake 2, released 1997, just before the uh, holiday season in uh, Christmas, uh, December 9th, as of 1997. How long to beat? About eight hours is what it's saying. Game facts rating 3.78 out of 5. I would round it up to a 4 out of 5. Quake is a classic. Uh, I, I always enjoyed Quake. I think I more or less played it on... Uh, I think it was either PC or N64 I played it on. But yeah, Quake's a classic for sure. It's basically a reskinned Doom. Uh, Final Doom was another one, 1996. And the same era that the PS1 obviously already came out. And obviously, I believe right before... Um, N64 came out, because I think N64 came out September, if I'm not mistaken, and this came out in May 31st. GameFAQs rating 3.98 out of 5, so I would round it up to a 4 out of 5. I mean, it's Doom. What else can you say, man? Doom kicks ass. I, I mean, shit, I've still been playing Doom on my uh, Switch, and Doom 3, which is uh, an original Xbox uh, release that got ported to uh, Switch for $10. I mean, you can't, you can't beat it. It's fucking Doom. I mean, come on. Duke Nukem. Duke Nukem was a lot of fun. It basically flipped doom upside down and made it like quirky goofy and fun uh just as gory and graphic i mean the the guy you know duke nukem looks like the main blonde character from contra and then like he has like arnold schwarzenegger one-liners i mean it's heavily inspired by doom subsequently plays very similarly it's fast play uh paced action gameplay that must be tackled head-on it's duke nukem's third entry came out in 1997 december 2nd has a 3.6 so if you round, it was a four out of five. I mean, Duke Nukem is a lot of fun. I, I played him on uh, the 360, I think, was the last one that I played, and I had a lot of fun with it. Alien Resurrection on PS1 came out 2000, uh, October 10th, has a 3.5 out of five. I think the only real Alien game that I actually ever really gave time to, I have two, uh, was, I believe it was Alien 3, I think, on Sega Genesis, which is a platforming 16-bit uh, um, side-scrolling shooter as well as uh, Alien Isolation on 360. I think I just got stuck on that one. I think there was, you know, a Xenomorph that was chasing me, and I just kept dying, so I stopped playing. But uh, Alien Resurrection, it's on PS1 as a uh, top-rated um, 
first-person shooter. Jumping Flash 2, once again, what is can't be said that has already been said about Jumping Flash 1. It's basically just more of it, you know? All right. Next one, Power Slave. I definitely remember seeing this also on, I think, PS2, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I vaguely, vaguely remember this one. It's it's ported as Quake and Duke Nukem 3D to the Sega Saturn. It takes players to Egypt and tasks them with taking down a plethora of enemy types and Metroidvania genre in the first-person uh, first shooter genre. It kind of equivocates to both of those. All right, what else we got here? Descent. I definitely remember playing Descent. It's one of the many games on this list that took heavy inspiration from id's software. Doom, obviously Doom clones just... Doom just revolutionized the first-person shooter as well as Wolfenstein. I would say Wolfenstein was, like, the foundation, and then Doom was the actual, like, let's just say, uh, you know, the two-by-fours that built the house. And then, obviously, the house it, in, you know, contained was, let's just say, uh, the living room was 007, and then the actual entire house was probably Halo for me. It, does that make sense? I feel like that's a pretty good analogy. But a Descent is definitely in there with being a top-rated... Uh, doom clone it's game facts is 3.8 out of 5 so if i were to round obviously 4 out of 5 came out in 1995 uh march 17th about 14 hours to beat by parallax software it's it's just one of those classics that you know you have to play uh hexen i definitely vaguely remember hexen as well also being on n64 i think that's where i played it i think i had an n64 before i got a ps1 i remember when uh the ps1 mini i guess if you will the little tiny rounded squared one got re-released at toys r us with the little uh fucking uh tv that was mounted on the top of it i remember i picked that up and i don't think i ever played hexen on it but i definitely played hexen on uh, n64 was it yeah it was hexen yeah yeah, yeah. okay Alien Trilogy, once again, I mean, it's Alien, what hasn't been said already about Aliens, the next one, Never Heard of Disruptor, of course, 007, The World is Not Enough, the 007 games were all pretty fun, I, I had a lot of fun with them, uh, obviously, Goldeneye, The World is Not Enough on, um, uh, what, fucking, uh, N64, of course, the blue cartridge, and then obviously the gray cartridge, but, uh, it was the second James Bond game to be released on the PlayStation, the first to be released on N64 since the genre changing GoldenEye 007, as I already mentioned, which was the uh, fore foreground for creating a house, I guess, a blueprint. I feel like that's a pretty uh, solid analogy. I'm just going to stick with that one. The previous entry was Tomorrow Never Dies, which had uh, more gadgets, tighter gameplay, and smarter, a smarter enemy AI, but... The World Is Not Enough that came out in 2000, um, November 7th by Black Ops Entertainment. About five hours to beat. It's a relatively short first-person shooter, but it just, it just, it made it tighter to play. It has a 3.28 out of 5. Uh, it's it's well worth your time. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Tenka, or Tenka, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. I never played this one. Psygnosis did a lot of cool games developed by them. Released 1997, May 31st. About four hours to beat. It's very, very short. Developed by a former British development publishing team, Psygnosis, best known for their work on Wipeout, which is a classic, uh, basically, wave race meets like Jet Moto. They also did Lemmings and Destruction Derby uh, franchises. Um, I've never played Tanka, but I've definitely played Lemmings, and I've definitely played Wipeout. Wipeout's a lot of fun. And that's all I have on first-person shooters via PS1. Uh, I don't know why they didn't include the Contra games. I mean, well, Contra's not really first-person, but, I mean, they do have an overhead... Um, view i think it's like contra legacy or something is what came out on a uh, ps1 it's fun but it's not something to be i guess really spoken about heavily anyway 
Next one I got here is top 25 underrated horror films uh, in no particular genre or no particular order. But uh, I guess let's take a look here. It looks like I'm looking at initially, um, I believe it's Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland. It doesn't say anything about it, but I could definitely see Donald Sutherland. Okay, next one, uh, Sisters, 1973. I don't think I've seen this one or heard of it, to be honest with you guys. Hang on a second, let me get a sip here. All right, a man goes home with a French girl, discovers that she has a twin. Just his luck. Well, not exactly. The twin happens to be part of the girl's imagination, a doppelganger who stabs him to death while a neighbor watches from a window. Part Hitchcock and part Antiononi and 100% Brian De Palma. Ooh, Brian De Palma. I've been liking his movies a lot lately, too. This is a movie that needs more love. All right, well... You got me captivated. I will gladly look that one up and watch it. What else we got here? The Brood. I remember, okay, I remember when I was on shore duty and I had this movie and it's David Cronenberg and it, there's just such a buildup to it and I think the people that I was with, like they didn't have the same facet and fascination and broad imagination to these practical effects that I really thoroughly enjoy with body horror and so forth. Like I was with like three or four of my guys of the same rate, the same rank and so forth. And like the buildup is what was really getting to us. We were like, what is going on? What is going on? And then I was like, oh, cool. It's this giant, weird fucking alien, you know, egg thing or whatever the hell it was. I probably need to rewatch it. That was the last time I watched it, which was probably three or four years ago now. But the Brood, 1979. Therapist is running a cult in the woods. We recommend you get the heck out of there. That's the statement here. Uh, David Cronenberg took us back to uh, a time of wisdom, as you could guess by this story of a wife whose therapy sessions become a reality. She wants her mother dead, her daughter kidnapped, her husband's on the run. All these things happen in Cronenberg's visceral body horror classic. See, I already happened to mention body horror, and it's 1979. I like this kind of stuff that's just goofy and off the wall, just batshit crazy, and just such a slow build up and then they were all disappointed and I was like this is cool and I think they had that kind of sentimentality that I definitely have that they didn't have at the time uh the audience that I was watching it with and I was like well I think I got rid of the movie I'll probably have to repurchase it but anyway what else we got here the invitation 2015 it says, guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, to dinner. That's not the film. That's a great film, though, with uh, Spencer Tracy, I believe, uh, Audrey Hepburn, no, no, uh, Catherine Hepburn, excuse me, as well as uh, Sidney Poitier. A cycle who is about to kill everyone. The slow burner thrill is one of these movies that should have more fans at the table. Invitation, huh? All right, I might have to check that one out. I'm very reluctant to always watch new films. Anyway, let the right one in. I saw it. It was okay about the vampire at night, 2008, these kids. Anyway, moving on. Cat People. I really like Cat People. And then they remade it, I think, in like the 80s or 90s. But the original one and then Return of the Cat People was also really cool. But the original one in 1942, it's it's really cool. It's dark for the time. I would recommend that one. Eyes Without a Face. I mean, obviously the uh, Billy Idol song. But of course, I've seen this one as well. The mask that the uh, woman wears the whole time. It's it's cool. Eyes Without a Face, 1960. Definitely watch that one. The Tenant, a Roman Polanski film, which I have... Uh, on my hard drive for purposes watching later on when I am out to sea. I just haven't watched this one yet. And I actually have been introducing uh, old TV shows to my buddies at work as well as uh, old films. I think I started to watch uh, Dead Alive. I have about maybe 20, 30 minutes left. I'll probably wait until I finish that film, which I've obviously seen it multiple times. We all know it's Peter Jackson, one of his greatest zombie films, or just let alone just one of his greatest within his catalog and quiver of films, if you will, in my perspective, of course, that... You know, 
I think gets discussed a fair amount, but is always willing to be brought to the table in terms of just great zombie films to be, you know, brought about and conveyed to audiences. Uh, anyway, I'm talking here about uh, The Tenet. 1976. One of the more underrated films that Roman Polanski did, the movie centers on a man who moves into the wrong apartment. His neighbors accuse him of stealing. His room is dirtier than it looks, and the walls are closing in on him. It's a reminder to view places before moving in, especially in Polanski films. Ooh, okay. I haven't watched it yet. I will definitely watch it with a buddy when I get a chance. <clears throat> Ganja and Hess. I feel like I've heard of this one. A mix of vampires and black exploitations in 1973, Dr. Hess murders his assistants and moves into his house main objective is to well i don't know what his main objective is but this movie is worth watching even if the plot doesn't make sense okay <laughs> sure uh repulsion which is another roman polanski film 1965 came out a couple years prior to uh, the tenant he made the tenant go insane and then the couple goes berserk in rosemary's baby and the long no longer go cuckoo in repulsion chronicle and mental collapse Excuse me. Catherine Denevue plays a single woman who starts to show cracks. In her personal life, she starts dating the wrong guy, which is nothing compared to what's going on in her place upstairs. So it's essentially about a mental instability within an individual who lives in an apartment. Okay. I'm always interested in that kind of stuff, especially if it's done well. Of course, Nosferatu, 1922. Not the Werner Her Herzog version, but... The original Nosferatu in 1922. It's the one that you want to see with all the moody shadows and creepy characters that you could ask for. It's a classic. I've seen it a couple times, and I love it. Silent films, yes, are definitely hard to get into, but this is one that you could definitely watch and is worth watching. What else we got here? Oh, it's Don't Look Now. I thought it was Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but it's definitely Donald Sutherland. I can tell just by looking at him. Okay. Set in 1970s Venice, the spin on the dead child movie centers on a couple who sees visions of their son. It looks as if the cracks in a broken heart made literally through the twisty canals of Venice and the spots of red that director Nicholas Rogue painted around the town. It's considered one of the best British films of all time for a good reason. It's hard to think of a more atmospheric film than this one. Okay, I will have to look into that one. I've never heard of that one. I, Like I said, I saw Donald Sutherland and I was like, yep, that's exactly what it is. It's Invasion of the Body Snatchers and... That movie is fucking phenomenal. I love that one. Uh, even the 50s one, it's entertaining, but the 70s one, Donald Sutherland, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and then Body Snatchers in the 90s, it's it's okay. I like this one the best. But anyway, Don't Look Now, 1973. Ennies Men, uh, E-N-Y-S. And it, it looks like something out of the 70s, the way that it's shot. It's all grainy, but it came out in 2023. It's about a woman who lives on an island alone where she charts the growth of flowers on a cliff. It's about as simple as a story gets, but then comes the madness. Mark Jenkins has made one of the most ambitious, inventive, and spellbinding movies of the year. A descent in the madness that is literally insane. Okay. All right. You got me sold. I mean, and the fact that it looks old, too. All right. Phantasm. I fucking love Phantasm, dude. I mean, Don Coscarelli. I mean, you know, come on, man. Angus, uh, what, Angus Scrim, that's his name. The guy who plays the uh, tall man. I mean, come on, man. A Phantasm, 1979. Fantastic. This movie is a bunch of midgets made out of ice cream. <laughs> Started a trend in horror that saw directors put as many crazy things on screen as possible. Flying saucers, space midgets, severed fingers in a box. It's all here in Phantasm. Some of the greatest fucking practical effects, especially for the time. Uh, one, two, and three, I think, are my favorite. Probably one and two being my favorite. Three is still good. Four, it's okay. Five, it's okay. 
But yeah, Phantasm's fantastic. I mean, Don Coscarelli did all of them. Angus Scrim was in all of them, even though they all took like a hiatus of about a decade before being each individually made. And then obviously he passed in 2015 when the last one came out. But anyway, what else we got here? Peeping Tom, 1960. I've talked about this one before. It wasn't Hitchcock, and it's uh, Michael Powell, the uh, British director. The movie came out the same year, actually three months prior, about a lonely man who goes insane. They both resort to violence, but Powell's movie is much more meta and colorful. His character's weapon is a camera, which makes for a pretty sharp metaphor on the power of cinema to cut deep. Peeping Tom, 1960. Arguably, what really, really started, I guess, just modern slashers. You know, I mean, it... It, it, it has to be discussed. It has to be. Peeping Tom is well worth your time. 1960. Under the Skin, 2014. It looks like Scarlett Johansson. It is. Okay. If she asked you to get into the car, would you do it? That is the opening question, rhetorically, of course. Obviously you would, which is what makes her casting in Jonathan Glazer's movie so perfect. She lures men into her car and then eats them alive in her dungeon. What the fuck? She's an extraterrestrial with an extra large appetite, and horror fans will find plenty to chew on as well. I've never heard of this one. And it's Scarlett Johansson? I mean, like, come on. That's that's a trip. Okay. The Green Knight. I thought it was terrible. I didn't really think it was that great. I liked the uh, one that I discussed on an episode or two ago that I watched with uh, Sean Connery. I thought that was much better. <laughs> anyway. Barbarian 2022. I thought this was fun. I really enjoyed it. It was it was interesting. I, I expected the main guy to be the killer. And then you're like, oh, it's this weird overgrown like mutated grandma lady below the uh airbnb that is the crazy lady but anyway barbarian 2022 well worth your time i thought so at least inferno i mean come on it's dario agento 1980 made two types of films in his career crazy ones and then crazier ones that's well said if you ask me inferno lands in the crazier camp with much more gonzo moments than it has in his past work which wasn't really grounded to begin with see suspiria came out in 1977 Similar color effects and similar uh, sound effects as well. Movie follows a tenant who discovers strange things happening next door. It's not a spoiler to say that blood and guts ensue, as well as just madness. Inferno is well worth your time. I think anything Dara Argento has really done is well worth your time, especially for those of you that are fans of horror. Fucking Giallo kicks ass. Dario Argento's Inferno, 1980. Picnic at Hanging Rock, 1975. It looks like, I don't know, something about like... Uh, What's the Wicker Man? It looks like something like that. It sees a group of girls disappear on the trip to Hanging Rock where they leave no marks behind. It's the greatest mystery you've never heard of with some of the most dreamlike images ever put on film. Interesting. Okay, I'll have to check it out. It came out in 1975. It's a staple of the Australian New Wave which saw directors explore the outback through the stories of missing people. Now's your chance to lose yourself in the scenery as well. Okay. I'm going to have to write some of these ones down, man. And check them out and then I'll get back to you guys about them. Near Dark, 1987. I already talked about it. I thought it was a fantastic zombie, not zombie, sorry, a vampire film that nobody really talks about, and it's fucking incredible. Bill Paxton, I mean, come on. What what, what I haven't already said about this film? Well worth your time. Near Dark, vampire film, 1987. Check it out. A Girl Walks Home at Night, 2014. It's even shot in black and white, and it looks like it's old. I like that. Another vampire. This time, the bloodsucker is a girl who rides a skateboard and roams around Iran. She's not your everyday vampire. Anna Lily Armbapura isn't your everyday director. She's a young artist who only seems interested in old techniques. Well, I applaud you for that because it looks old. I like that. Vampire, 1932 with a Y. V-A-M-P-Y-R. 
I've heard of this one. I don't think I've watched it yet, though. Continuing our Vampire Marathon offers a take on the genre even more different than our last two titles. Carl Theodore Dreyer was also known for turning images into dreams, which he does better than almost anyone here. You'll have to go along with the story of a man visiting a haunted village, even if the plot fades into a dreamy, expressionistic fog. Okay, what else we got here? The Blob, 1958. The original one was Steve McQueen. Come on, it's classic. I mean, I love the 80s one more because of the effects that they were able to achieve, but the 1958 one is still still iconic and a lot of fun. Well worth your time. The Unknown, 1927. I don't know if I've ever heard of this one. Great moments of terror and icky moments of exploitation and Todd Browning's 1927 chiller. If you can look past the fact that Browning put deformed people into a circus, you can find a movie that was ahead of its time. It's a movie that knows where to put the camera and how to frame scares, which is an impressive given the look of most Hollywood movies at the time. Agreed, because a lot of ones from the 20s are a little hard to watch. 30s, they definitely get better. 40s and 50s are just iconic classics that I love personally. But anyway... Night of the Hunter, 1955. Robert Mitchum does a great, great... I've mentioned this one before. It's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. I, I can agree with that. This is where the, you know, love-hate uh, tattooed on somebody's hands actually comes from. He's essentially like a traveling, quote-unquote, like salesman to be a fake-out priest. And he uh, essentially finds this money, which the money goes into like this little uh, girl's uh, rabbit. Along the way, they pass open fields, expressionistic shadows, some of the best set pieces ever put on film, accompanied by a lullaby score and a lyrical setting. You may find yourself lost in this ethereal world. Yeah, it's he just keeps trying to find where this little girl has the money, and it's in the rabbit, and he's going around like trying to kill people to essentially find... Dude, it's... Night of the Hunter's fucking awesome. Highly, highly recommended and well worth your time. All right, I got one more... Uh, best RPGs by Konami ranked. I mean, come on. I have to, I have to talk about some more video games here. All right, let me start from the bottom. I, that's probably where they started. Uh, Sweek it in two. I've definitely, vaguely seen a little bit of it. I've never personally played it. I have these games. I just haven't gotten around to playing them yet. Uh, released December seventeenth, nineteen ninety eight. A complex sixteen bit thrill ride with a nuanced narrative. Uh, the game is an elusive item that makes up about twenty seven true runes. It's such an elaborate 3d world that was booming at the time for uh, playstation one and there's just so many different character developments it's just it's almost overwhelming but looking at it i remember thinking like wow that looks incredible uh vandal hearts which is also another incredibly expensive game on ps1 came out october 25th 1996 came out on uh, ps1 as well as windows on pc and in, to include sega saturn it's probably much more expensive in the U.S. territories on Sega Saturn, so your best bet would probably be PlayStation. Granted, it's probably in the hundreds, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, nothing like a little monster. Richly plotted RPG, Vandal Hearts provides one of the most impressive tactical gameplay experiences of its generation. It's challenging turn-based action on a grid-based battle, including set pieces. I remember watching some of it, and it looks like a lot of fun. So we get in the first one, obviously December 15th, 1995, Sega Saturn, PS1, as well as Windows. All right, what else we got here? Azure Dreams. I've definitely heard of this one. Uh, dungeon crawling RPGs with endless randomly generated maps. They're almost so daunting that it's just, I'm like, eh. I also do have it on Game Boy Color as well. Um, I believe it's a different port, but also still made by a Konami. Vandal Hearts 2, another one that's just excellent battle action and creative gameplay that Came out July 8th, 1999, nearing the end of PlayStation 1's cycle right before PS2 came out. 
All right, what else we got here? Uh, oh, I guess that's it by Konami. Okay, all right. Then I guess I would play Azure Dreams, Squeak It In, as well as Vandal Hearts. Yeah, and that's really all they talked about anyway. All right, well, that's all I have in terms of video games and films, uh, in terms of me uh, talking about ones to discuss. And I will be talking about um, some <laughs> two... I guess, like I said, smutty films briefly, and then I will be getting into some fantasy films. All right, let me take a quick break. <clears throat> All right, let's knock out these two <laughs> uh, films that, well, I already mentioned what they are, but anyway, well, what type of film they are, but uh, <laughs> The Bikini Car Wash Company, uh, 1992, rated R, an hour and 27 minutes, and rightly so, the fact that it's rated R because it's basically an hour and a half of Softcore porn and guitar solos. It has a 4.5 out of 1,100 reviews. Uh, it's a comedy. Women go topless at a car wash company in order to increase business. Directed by Ed Hansen. I don't know what else this guy did. Let's take a look. Probably other fucking softcore porn movies. Uh, known for other, yeah, films that look relatively similar-ish that I've never heard of. All right. <laughs> um, featuring people that I don't necessarily know who they are or whatever else they've been in. I don't even know why I'm talking about this, but the fact is I watched it. And there's a sequel, apparently, Bikini Car Wars Company 2. Uh, I'm going to have to watch it just because, <laughs> because I watched the first one. It's uh, essentially to attract more customers and increase profits. The girls opt out for a simple uniform. The bikini cars queue up for miles, but the authorities aren't happy with the way that women are operating. So the authorities keep coming back, essentially trying to dismantle the uh, car wash and the uh, young nephew i guess who's operating the car wash is like oh i'm doing it because i need money my you know uncle's out of town because of his uh fucking allergies and i'm like that's so dumb that he couldn't manage a car wash because of allergies but anyway let's take a look at trivia here there might be something interesting i'm not sure daily show writer and podcast host dan mccoy lists the motion picture among one of his favorite films of course he does because there's naked women in it you know enough said right Sarah Suzanne Brown said she was originally called in for an audition because of her body. Once they saw that she could actually act, they wrote a much bigger, more comedic role for her for the sequel. Okay, all right, now I have to watch the second one. <laughs> uh, the band Bikini Car Wash Company take their name from this film. Of course they do. There's a fucking band. Are you kidding me? Lastly, Christy Ducati's first role, though it was released after a couple of her other later films. All right, nothing really <laughs> too interesting other than the fact there's a sequel as well as a band all right here let me uh take a look here released june 17th 1992 also known as trend de lavado topless of course uh in spanish uh filmed in rosemead california and nothing in terms of a budget here let's see what wiki has to say all right it is a sex comedy uh filmed and directed by ed hansen 1992 Released in 1993 was the sequel, the second one. Writer George Buck Flower had guest starred in an episode of Modern Three Stooges style show Nuts and Yuts and Cluts, set in a car wash set in shit. What am I, fucking Sean Connery? Whoops, I didn't mean to do that. Set in 1990, inspired to make a car wash a locale for prettier caster characters. Uh, and that's it, really, on that film. Less than three minutes. There's nothing to be said other than the fact that it's goofy, quirky comedy and nudity for those of you that like watching that crap. Apparently I do, so that's all I really have on that. All right, Boogie Nights, a much better version of Smut uh, <laughs> that actually has a story, and it's well said, and it's a long film. It's two and a half hours, rated R, 1997, has a 7.9 out of 280,000, and a well-casted uh, film to be had as well. Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, as well as Burt Reynolds, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in this film. I mean, come on, man, it's... 
I, I finally watched it. I've never seen it before. And I was like, where have I been? This is, this is a lot of fun. Back when sex was safe, pleasure was a business and business was booming. Idealistic porn producer aspires to elevate his craft to an art when he discovers a hot young talent. All right, moving on. Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, Louise Guzman. That's his name. Okay, so I, I, I was right. I'm like, it's got to be like Louis, Louise. Yeah, Louise Guzman is in this. John C. Riley. that's right. He's in this. Don Cheadle, William H. Macy. I mean, Heather Graham is in this as the roller girl. She has rollerblades on the entire time. They're all fucking coked out. If you haven't seen this movie, I recommend it. Directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Let's see what else this individual did. It sounds very, very familiar, his art. Uh, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, that was great. Okay, all right, so yeah, I definitely know the guy. I just didn't know the name, I suppose, offhand. All right, moving on. Ah, uh, man, taglines. 1977, sex was safe, pleasure was business, and business was booming. All right, yeah, that's pretty much, yeah, that's pretty solid. It, it's a little longer for my taste, but I like the tagline. It works. Trivia, let's take a look here. After seeing a rough cut of the film, Burt Reynolds regretted making it. He fired his agent for recommending the role to him. He did not participate in any promotional interviews. Burt Reynolds ended up winning a Golden Globe for the role and being nominated for an Academy Award for his performance. Despite being a frontrunner for the latter, it was widely rumored that he did not want to win because he had distanced himself from the movie earlier. Yeah, I, I can see that. He probably didn't want to be associated with it because he had such a trite uh, role in, you know, I guess just being an actor in a business where I guess something like this is probably frowned upon and I can see his point. Amber Waves' custodial problems were inspired by porn star Veronica Hart who plays the judge during the scene in which Amber and her husband are arguing in court about their son. Interesting. Paul Thomas Anderson, director, simulated the dialogue in fake porn films by adapting an actual dialogue from real porn films. He said that it did so people could not say that the porn dialogue sounded fake. Interesting. Leonardo DiCaprio was actually originally offered the role of Eddie Adams, Dirk Diggler. He liked the screenplay, but turned it down because he had already signed on to do Titanic at the time. Little known fact, then Leonardo DiCaprio basically does that in Wolf of Wall Street, relatively. DiCaprio suggested Mark Wahlberg for the role, and Mark obviously took it. That's pretty cool. He was like, well, I'm going to do a much bigger, better film with James Cameron, and uh, here, have Mark Wahlberg, and that's pretty cool. So I wonder if at the end of the film, if it were DiCaprio, then we would have saw DiCaprio's fucking big old fucking schlong rather than Mark Wahlberg's. Anyway, lastly, Burt Reynolds hated the idea of doing the film, promoting the porn industry, turning Jack Horner roll down seven uh, times. He also felt that he was selling out and letting his old fans down. Right, I get that. After angrily telling Paul Thomas Anderson the last time he offered he wasn't interested and to leave him alone, Anderson told him if he could carry the attitude with him to the role, he would be nominated for an Oscar. He subsequently chose to do the film after his agent pushed him to do so because he hadn't had a decent offer in a long time. He was later nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Yeah, that's, that's there's a lot of turmoil there with uh, Burt Reynolds on this film, but I feel like he was one of the best characters in it, if you ask me. Uh. Excuse me. It's got to be the carbonated monster. I'm drinking water now. Anyway, released October 31st, Halloween 1997. Uh, also known as Pushing 13. Interesting. Filmed in West Covina, California. Released by New Line Cinema, Lawrence Gordon Productions, as well as Gallardi Film Company. Its budget was $15 million and it grossed $43 million worldwide. Wow, that's incredible. All right, let's see what a Wikipedia has to say here. Premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival September 11th, 1997. Wow. Uh, obviously before, you know, four years prior to uh, the uh, attack. Uh, and was theatrically released October 10th. So 
I guess uh, the time frame here is about three weeks off. But anyway, it was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Original Screenplay. Prey. What am I freaking? What the hell is wrong with me? Best Original Screenplay for Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson, the director that is. Uh, Best Supporting Actress for Julianne Moore and Best Supporting Actor for Burt Reynolds. Film soundtrack also received acclaim because it's one of Anderson's best works and it's one of the best films of all time. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it is it is entertaining. It, it was a lot of fun. I don't think it deserves that claim to fame, but it, it was cool, <clears throat> you know. All right. Development Boogie Nights is based on a mockumentary short film that Anderson wrote and directed while he was still in school called The Dirk Diggler Story. The short itself was based on a 1981 documentary, Exhausted, John C. Holmes, The Real Story, a documentary about the life of legendary porn actor John Holmes, on whom Dirk Diggler is based, a.k.a. Mark Wahlberg's character. Interesting. I don't think I knew that. After having a very difficult time getting his previous film, Hard Eight, released, Paul Thomas Anderson laid down a hard law when making Boogie Nights. He initially wanted the film to be over three hours long and to be rated NC-17. Film's producers, particularly Michael DeLuca, said that the film had to be either under three hours or rated R. And they managed to do both. Uh, Anderson fought with them, saying that with the film, they would not have had a mainstream appeal no matter what. They did not change their minds. Anderson chose the rating R as a challenge. Despite this film, the film was still 25 minutes shorter than promised. But Reynolds did not get along with Anderson while filming. That's obviously already... I already iterated that multiple times. Okay. All right. Receptively, review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes. It holds on E4%, probably because they're a bunch of perverts. <laughs> with an average score of 8.10 out of 10. So, I mean, 8.10, you might as well just say fucking 9 out of 10. That's what they give them. Okay, good job, Rotten Tomatoes, 94%. Cites critical consensus states, grounded in strong characters, bold themes, and subtle storytelling. Boogie Nights is a groundbreaking film for both director Paul Thomas Anderson and starring Mark Wahlberg uh, early on in his career. Uh, Metacritic, the film holds a weighted average of 86 out of 100 based on 28 critics, indicating universal acclaim. I agree. It was great, but I don't think it's one of the greatest films of all time. Hell no. Roger Ebert. Okay, let's see what this pervert had to say, right? Chicago Sun-Times Tribune observes, Few films have been more matter-of-fact, even disenchanted about sexuality. Adult films are a business here, not a dalliance or a pastime. And one of the charms of Boogie Nights is the way that it shows the everyday backstage humdrum life of porno filmmaking the sweep and variety of characters have brought the movie comparisons to Robert Allman's Nashville and The Player. There's also some of the same appeal as Pulp Fiction in scenes that balance precariously between comedy and violence. Agreed. Through all the characters and all the action, Anderson's screenplay centers on the human qualities of the players. Boogie Nights has the quality of great many films in that it will always seem alive. Yeah, I mean, it did seem like it was taking time or taking place in real time. I can give him that. I agree with that accolades here we obviously know what it was nominated for and so forth music was also very well done and that's all i really have on boogie nights as well as uh, bikini car wash company i'm gonna take a quick little break and i'm gonna get right back into these fantasy films before i close out the episode Well, I figured some of, since I'm going to be talking about some of these uh, fantasy films, I got, what, one, two, three, four, five, six I'm going to be talking about. I figured how about a little uh, Doom slash Stoner Metal or whatever, because it kind of fits the ambiance of everything. Uh, Weedian, Trip to Oklahoma, came out this year, apparently, full compilation. Thank you to uh, 666 Mr. Doom. I've definitely subscribed to him because I like his taste in fucking stoner metal or desert rock i guess as josh homie likes to talk about <clears throat> from a queens of the stone age as well as caius anyway first film i can't fucking speak english holy crap 
first film I'm going to be talking about is Barbarian Queen, 1985, rated R, an hour and 14 minutes. That's one thing that I like about a lot of these films is they're rather short, usually less than an hour and a half. Uh, the tagline here is, no man can touch her naked steel. Yeah, that's what it says. Just the cover art alone, they just look like such like power metal, uh, just heavy metal album covers. Like the way that the women are, the way that they're just drawn, the shadows, the coloring, their weapons, the just mysticism behind all of it. I fucking love it. Like I would, I, I gotta buy some of these freaking posters and then put them in my room when I finally get a fucking room. Anyway, adventure fantasy, a sword wielding warrior, Amitha, and a few companions embark on a life or death mission to liberate her people from the clutches of a brutal monarch who destroyed her village and enslaved her people. Has a 4.1 out of 3000 reviews and I'd at least give it a five. I mean, all of these are probably below five. I mean, they're entertaining. They're just fun, quirky, goofy, you know, directed by Hector Oliveira. I don't know what else this individual did, but let's take a look here. Maybe uh, there's something else that I've seen that they did. Uh, I don't recognize anything. All right, moving on. <laughs> Sorry, Hector, but I enjoyed this film nonetheless. It was fun. Uh, I don't really recognize anybody. Lana Clarkson plays Amethia. I mean, and you know, in some regards, some of these women are you know, I guess, uh, scantily clad or naked in some regard. I mean, that's just a plus, but I, I definitely enjoy the practical effects and the imagery and the artwork behind it and the goofy, quirky story, but I had fun with it, man. It, it's, it was fun. You know, more similar to this would be like Deathstalker. I've seen all four Deathstalkers and the first two are definitely the best. Um, and then there's also a sequel, apparently, Barbarian Queen 2, The Empress Strikes back apparently uh similar to that of course star wars empire strikes back it's probably where they got the title from i will have to uh watch it later on when i uh, have the opportunity to the tagline here says uh, no man can possess her no man can defeat her that's the dvd version rather than the actual poster art let's take a look at the uh, trivia here for uh, barbarian queen Kate Shea's actress and future director first led role. She was sent to audition by her agent, but they hired somebody else. Then the actress got a TV pilot and Shea was the next in line, so they offered it to her. She flew to Argentina where she spent the two and a half months wearing skimpy outfits or nothing at all. Well, I like that. <laughs> uh, no, let me uh, let me move on from that. Sorry, my computer like wants to restart here. I'll restart after I'm done with this. Both Argentinian director and producer Hector Oliveira and American lead actress Lana Clarkson were born on April 5th. Oliveira was born in Buenos Aires in 1931 and is still alive. Whereas Clarkson, born in 1962, was shot to death in 2003. She was 40 years old by songwriter and music producer Phil Spector, who passed away in 2021 in his L.A. home in Alhambra. He died in prison aged 81. Wow, that's fucking sad. I, I did not know that. Uh, lastly here, Don Dunlap's last role. She made six films over a six period in 1979 to 85, starting when she was 15, then left the industry and married multimillionaire advertising guru Sir Frank Lowe, taking on the name of Lady Don Lowe. The couple had a son in 94 and divorced in 2007. Wow, that's some interesting and sad trivia at the same time. Wow. All right, what else we got here? All right, released April 26, 1985. Also known as Queen of the Naked Steel. I like that. That's a cool name. Filmed in Panorama, Parana Liver, Liver. I can't even, wow. I'm sober and I can't even fucking speak English. Parana River, Argentina. Holy crap. Produced by Rodeo Productions. And nothing in terms of a budget. Let's see what Wikipedia has to say here. All right. 
1985 American Argentine fantasy film starring Lana Clarkson. Executively produced by Roger Corman. That makes perfect sense because he was definitely going into the fantasy genre later on in his life rather than the quirky fucking 50s, 60s horror films that he did that were just batshit off the wall crazy. It was the third in a series of 10 films that Corman produced in Argentina during the 80s. Well, his other films of that era I will have to look into and check out. And like I said before, the fucking theatrical release poster for this is just awesome. I got to purchase that. Uh, Production-wise, the film was one of the first from Corman's new company, Concord. Barbarian Queen was filmed in Don Turquato, Argentina, by director Hector Oliveira. As part of the nine-picture deal between Oliveira's Iris Productions and Roger Corman's U.S.-based Concord New Horizons, Corman was looking to produce low-budget sword and sorcery films to capitalize on the success of Conan the Barbarian in 82, which came out a couple years prior. While Oliveira sought to fund more personal film projects via the profits from his deal with Corman, Lana Clarkson, who had appeared in a supporting role in Anazomian Warrior in the previous Iris Concord production Deathstalker, which was awesome, cast in the lead as Amathea. Clarkson performed all of her own stunts in this picture. That's cool. Uh, Vestrum Video originally released two versions of the film on VHS, the R-rated theatrical cut and unrated edition that contained an extended version of the dungeon sequence. All subsequent DVD releases only contained the R-rated cut. Shout Factory, applaud them. DVD release contains the unrated material as a bonus feature. Receptively, Joe Bob Riggs, nice, gives the film tongue-in-cheek positive review writing it's no Conan, the Barbarian 2, but it got what it takes, namely 46 breasts, <laughs> including two on the male lead, that's funny. 31 dead bodies, heads roll, heads spill, three gang rapes, yeah. Women in chains, orgy, slave girl sharing, one bird's nest bra, and the diabolical garbanza torture. Sword foo, torch foo, thigh foo. You have to see it to believe it. Yes, agreed. TV Guide rates it at a two out of five stars. Wrote that despite the film's exploitative content, Oliveira injects some style of pace to rather silly things that are going on. Yes, I can agree with that. Uh, the sequel here, Barbarian Queen 2, the follow-up film, <clears throat> build as a sequel, but actually neither the plot nor the characters had anything to do with the original, except for Lana Clarkson starring again in the title role, and the inclusion of the protracted sequence reminiscent of the first film, with Clarkson's character princess, Athalia, who is implied to be the reincarnation of Amethea being captured, stripped, and tortured on Iraq. Wow. Uh, principal photography for the sequel took place in Mexico in 88, however the film was not released in the U.S. until 1992 when it went straight to video. There's two more here. Wow. Okay. Wizards of the Lost Kingdom 2. Lana Clarkson reprised the role of Amethia as supporting character in the PG-rated Wizards of the Lost Kingdom 2, 1989, featuring recycled footage of battle scenes from Barbarian Queen. Wow. They did that a lot with stuff like this, though, especially with a sorceress and warrior and sorceress and so forth. I'll get to those in a minute because I watched those. Despite this, there is no apparent connection to the plot of Barbarian Queen, and Amethia appears in the Wizards of the Lost Kingdom 2, arguably not the same character that Clarkson played in Barbarian Queen. Wow. Okay, lastly here, proposed third film. In 1990, it was announced that Barbarian Queen 3, Revenge of the She-King, would film in Bulgaria. However, the project was never completed. I don't think they could achieve the same quality, well, I guess whatever quality that is present here, <laughs> if they decided to make it now, personally. But anyway, legacy-wise, Roger Corman reportedly claimed in his later years that the title character was an inspiration for Xena Warrior Princess. Yeah, I, I can probably attest to that and agree with him there. Anyway, that's all I have on Barbarian Queen. Next film, Amazons. Same thing. Really fucking cool pixel, not pixel, sorry. Really cool uh, poster cover art here, like pastel painting. Looks like a, you know, power metal, just fucking heavy metal album cover. It's awesome. 1986, rated PG, 
uh, Hour and 16 has a 4.2 out of 1,300 reviews. <clears throat> An evil king made a deal with the devil and received a deadly power that will defeat anyone standing in his way. It's up to the fearless warrior to define a magical sword, which the only weapon that could stop him. Directed by Alejandro Cesar. Let's see what else this individual did because I don't recognize anything. Another Argentinian who decided to direct produced Deathstalker and produced Highlander 2, The Quickening. Okay, all right. I can get on board with that. I'm really digging this fucking album by Weedian. Uh, Med Medicine Horse is the name of the uh, group, and I like it. All right, <clears throat> back to Amazons. Sounds like a female singing. I like it. Anyway, uh, billeted Mindy Miller as Dahlia as Windsor Taylor Randolph. Uh, I don't really recognize anybody because, well, they were probably all really like no names. But once again, it's sword and sorcery and fantasy and magic and so forth. And, you know, random gratuitous nudity because it was the 80s. Why not? Right. All right. Storyline here. Lost for centuries, the legendary sword of Azumdari, a magnificent blade imbued with unlimited magical powers, the only thing on earth that can defeat the dark necromancer Kalungo and his demonic minions. After surviving a devastating attack on the Emerald City of Invisi, untamed Amazon warrior Queen Diala embarks on a peril-laden quest to retrieve the mystical artifact along with equally fearless sisters-in-arms, Tashi and Tashingi. Yes, this one was actually really cool. It was uh, Sisters. I definitely remember that. However, treachery, sorcery, and betrayal stand in their way. Will Diala and the dauntless Amazonian defender thwart the evil sorcerer's plan for world domination? Newsflash. Yes, they do. <laughs> the legend of Excalibur lives on in Amazons, the tagline here. Uh, sure, why not? Trivially, let's take a look here. All right. This movie is part of the notorious German Schleifaz series. Thus, it was aired September 2023 on the German TV station Tele5. Schleifaz is a German abbreviation meaning the worst films ever. <laughs> wow, that's funny. In the series, two hosts, presidents of the whole flick, dress up like the main characters and discuss overwhelming incompetence of those involved. Great fun. Okay. After production was completed on Amazon's in 86, Alejandro Sessa wrote and directed his second and final feature film, Storm Quest, 1987. This is the directorial debut of Alejandro Sessa. Released on VHS by CBS, CBS and Fox Video in Australia New Zealand in 87. Lastly, in the film's trailer, the voiceover says the legend of Excalibur lives on, an odd to the legend of the King Arthur himself. In the Arthurian legend, Arthur became king when he drew the magic sword Excalibur from a stone. I love the uh, Excalibur reference in uh, Leatherface, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, when he pulls the chainsaw out of the lake. Fucking cool. Anyway, let's get back to this. I could talk horror all day, which I usually do anyway. All right. Released October 29th, 1986. Also known as just Amazon. Okay. Uh, singularly. Uh, filmed in Argentina at Byrus Studios. Production companies, Aries Films International, New Horizons Picture. An hour and 16 minutes, as I stated. All right. Let's see what Wiki has to say. All right. The screenplay was written by Charles R. Saunders based on his short story, Agbu is Sword which first appeared in the 1979 anthology Amazons, a short story included part of the series Dossiu about the real-life female warriors of the West African Kingdom of Dahomey, gathered together in a novel published by Saunders in 2008. I feel like a lot of this, I'm just like rambling about like just random places that clearly don't exist, but they're just random letters put together. Mbuzi and then like Tashigi and Tashingwe. And like, I'm like, what the hell am I even talking about? But apparently you guys like to listen and I also enjoyed the film. So I'm going to continue talking about it. So excuse me if I'm not making any sense here, but there's nothing else on wiki about Amazons. But if you like these uh, sword and sorcery fantasy films and a fucking wicked, wicked, 
like just poster art like come on man check it out anyway next one <clears throat> sorceress once again beautiful beautiful fucking cover art here the uh, tagline here on the uh, cover art is an age undreamt of an age of fantasy and magic of swords and sorcery i like that that's cool has a 4.4 out of 2600 reviews slightly rated better than the previous two films amazons and barbarian queen came out in 1982 an hour and 23 minutes rated r because of course uh violence as well as gratuitous random nudity uh, why not right Sword and Sorcery Story of the Cosmic Struggle Between White Magic and Black Magic, directed by Jack Hill. Let's see what else this individual did here. Maybe I know something. Maybe I don't. Uh, he did Coffee. He wrote that one with uh, Pam Greer, as well as Foxy Brown. So he did a lot of the exploitation stuff, which is cool, including uh, The Big Dollhouse. I've definitely heard of these films. I have yet to watch them, and I will definitely get to some exploitation episodes uh, sometime soon, within this year, of course. All right starring uh nobody that i really know because it's a lot of random uh probably buenos aires brazilian actors and actresses so moving on from there <laughs> sorry guys uh storyline here hellbent on becoming the ultimate ruler of the universe by sacrificing his firstborn the powerful conjurer of illusions master of black arts trigon makes an unholy pact with the evil deity calgara however fate has other plans the other magician's wife gives her last breath to protect her newborn twin daughters trigon dies nearly two long decades later imbued with unlimited white force of their mentor crona the dauntless warrior sisters mira and mara embark on a dangerous mission to avenge their slaughtered mother and to defeat the resurrected warlock once and for all who shall live and who shall die in the final clash between good <coughs> excuse me and evil the uh, tagline here says an age undreamt of an age of fantasy and magic of swords and sorcery basically the same thing all right, trivially, let's take a look here. That's a sick, sick guitar solo. Sorry, my ADD is kicking in. Uh, Turbo Wizard is the name of the uh, band here, if anybody's interested. All right, let's get back to this. Trivially, for Sorceress, director Jack Hill asked that his name be removed from the credits for two reasons. One, special effects around <clears throat> which much of the script had been written ended up being much less impressive than producer Roger Corman had promised. And secondly, Hill had written a role for his friend Sid Haig, but Corman refused to hire him at the last minute. Wow. Okay. Director Jack Hill claims that Dino De Laurentiis, who was filming Dune in 84 in the same studio, stole the movie's lighting equipment for his own production. <laughs> that would be interesting if that was factual. I mean, I, yeah, that's just alleged, I suppose. Most of the music was taken from James Horner's score for Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980. Okay. The name of the film was decided on Roger Corman, to, who took a list of potential titles to a local high school and pulled the students on which they preferred. And I, yeah, I like that. Roger Corman came up with the idea for the winged lion, which was a hand puppet. And it's pretty obvious. It's really badly done, but I still have fun nonetheless uh, near the end of the film when you see that hand puppet thing. It's so, so badly done, but I love it. Released January 23rd, 1986 in Mexico, also known as the Barbarian Woman. I suppose they changed it not to be confused with Barbarian Queen and so forth. I mean, so many clashes with uh, similar titles here. Filmed in Mexico, produced by Cooperación Nacional de Cinematografía Conocine, New World Pictures. All right, let's see what uh, Wikipedia has to say here. Starring Leigh Harris and Lynette Harris, it was the last film directed by Jack Hill. Interesting. Development-wise, Hill says Corman approached him to do a sword and sorcery film inspired by the success of Conan the Barbarian. So just like how I said earlier uh, in this episode, there were a lot of Doom clones. There was also a lot of Conan the Barbarian clones. And this is what uh, he has to say. So at that time, Roger had a special effects studio in the New World Studios in Venice, California that was doing really good work. 
They had done some of the special effects work on John Carpenter's Escape from New York in 81 and some other big pictures. Corman owned the special effects unit himself so he could do it for a low budget. So to me, it was an opportunity to make something that would look like a big movie, which I had never had an opportunity to do before, though this might get me back in business doing mainstream pictures. I should have known better that joked Hill later on. Jack Hill said that he was inspired to do a film about twin girls inspired by the Corsican brothers. He wrote the script entirely, but Jim Wynorski is the only one credited. He said that the dialogue was unfortunately all dubbed by amateurs and office employees of which I was not involved in. And it's pretty obvious because, yeah, a lot of the dubbing, I'm like, what the hell? But like I said, you, you take it with a grain of salt. I still had fun with this film. According to Hill, Corman wanted to make a film in the Philippines, then got a deal <clears throat> to do it in Portugal. Jack Hill uh, visited that country and found out that they did not have the facilities. Corman was then going to make it Italy, which Hill thought would be ideal. Then two weeks before filming, Corman told Hill he had arranged a better deal in Mexico. That is where the film was shot, evidently. Hill said that they were there for about three to four months when they put together this very strange kind of deal with various crooks, like on one side, the Mexican government, and on the other side, Hemdale, which is now very notorious. Wow. Uh, Shooting-wise, the film was shot in Mexico in October of 81. Production was extremely difficult, plagued by rain, fire, and a low budget. Uh, Jack Hill claimed that Roger Corman never delivered the budget he had promised, forcing him to compromise on both special effects and music. Hill says the rise in the video market caused the decline in drive-ins, and Corman was even more worried than usual about money at that time. Jack Hill said that the Mexican crew worked their hearts out on the film, but also told him that this production had been the most problems of any movie they had ever been on. All kinds of things went wrong. The Mexican film vault on the studio lot even blew up. That's insane. Uh, Jack Hill wrote that part of Pando for Sid Haig, who had appeared in many of Hill's films, but Corman would not play the actor's fee, so another person played the role. Like many New World films out there, it reused James Horner's musical score from Battle Beyond the Stars in 1980, which I already iterated. And uh, lastly here, receptively, <clears throat> Hill took the name of the film, which only made a little over $1.3 million at the box office. It became the last time he and Corman had ever worked together. Uh, L.A. Times called it a fairly shabby movie. Sure, why not? And lastly, Corman went on to make a series of sword and sorcery films, including Deathstalker and Deathstalker 2. It makes perfect sense. I had no idea that Corman did those, and those are fantastic. I love those. Okay. Next one, Warrior and the Sorceress, 4.2 out of 2,500 reviews. Starring David Carradine, probably one of the most uh, well-known within these uh, fantasy films in terms of uh, well-known actors here. Uh, the cover art here says, An Age of Undreamt of, An Age of Mystery and Magic of Swords and Sorcery. It's, it's the same fucking, uh, <laughs> wow, same tagline for the Sorceress, but okay, whatever. Uh, the cover art here, it's still pretty pretty awesome. It's not as good as the others, but it's still hand-drawn, and it looks like a power metal album, which is awesome. 1984, an hour and 21 minutes, rated R. Very little gratuitous nudity from what I remember watching this film. And uh, there's really not much of a sorceress in this film. It's more or less just about the warrior, who happens to be David Carradine. It's a fearsome swordsman, Kane, who crosses the barren wastelands and comes upon a town where two arch enemies fight incessantly for control of the town's only well. It's about essentially a plot between, yeah, two, <coughs> excuse me, uh, aspects of this town where people are fighting for water. And he basically just has them on a string like a puppeteer or a, uh, you know, he has them like at that in the palm of his hands, essentially just driving them to fight each other pretty much. But directed by John C. Broderick. Let's see what else this individual did here. 
Showdown a Little Tokyo. He produced that one. I've definitely seen that one. Uh, the other two films that are mentioned for him, I don't recognize, but I've definitely seen Showdown a Little Tokyo, and that's martial arts and nudity and violence, and it was fun. I liked that one. Jason Lee and uh, Dolph Lundgren. Okay, starring David Carradine as Kane, as I mentioned. Luke Askew as Zeg the Tyrant. Uh, I definitely know Luke Askew from other films. Uh, Maria Sakas as Nadja the Sorceress, who's basically naked pretty much the entirety of the film, or very scantily clad for that matter. I don't recognize any other actors or actresses in this, but moving down. Storyline here, the mighty warrior Kane crosses the barren wastelands of the planet Yura where two archenemies, Zeg and the evil degenerate Balkaz, who's basically this giant, fat, fucking Jabba the Hutt-looking character, incessantly for control of the village's only well. Kane sees his opportunity and announces that his sword is for hire. His eyes stay clearly on the beautiful captive sorceress Naja and his newly awakened purpose. Let's take a look at what album is playing now. Wretched Hallucination. I, I can get on board with that. I like it. Okay. Taglines here, the mightiest blade, the most beautiful slave, the boldest conqueror of all time. That sounds much better than basically copyright infringement of the uh, Sorceress, the previous film. I think they might have put the same tagline only because the Sorceress uh, title is included in both films and probably produced by Roger Corman. So that's probably why he used it twice. So I, I get that. But that tagline is much better if you ask me. The plot is similar to A Fistful of Dollars. The same plot was used in Last Man Standing, 1996. All three films are reimaginings of the classic film Yojimbo, 1961, which I have. I just have yet to watch that film, and I will gladly sit down and watch it and talk about it one of these days. <clears throat> scenes of Kane fighting soldiers was recycled for scenes in Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, uh, which I just discussed previously in 1989. Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, 85. And then scenes of Lana Clarkson's character fighting were lifted from footage from her from Barbarian Queen 85. Wow. It's literally just copy-paste. They just keep editing films, and they're like, all right, let's call it something else, and people will watch it. People like me, I watched it. Whatever. Unlike much bigger budget movies such as Total Recall in 1990 or Good Luck Chuck in 2007, this movie features a woman with anatomically correct multiple breasts, in this case four. Yeah, I definitely remember seeing that, too. This does happen occasionally due to mutation, but only along the mammalian lines. Two arcs along the torso from genitals to the forelegs, armpits, and humans, on which the teats of all mammals occur. Uh, any number of teats may form on any species, but the typical amount is twice the usual litter size, which of course in one in humans, and no breast would ever form along a horizontal line. Thank you for the little scientific trivia there, I guess. IMDb, appreciate that. <coughs> This movie is part of the notorious German Schleifaz series, once again, the worst movies of all time in 2013. It's a German abbreviation, meaning the worst films ever, as I already mentioned. Two hosts present the whole movie and make fun of it throughout. It was aired on Der Krager and Und Dunhexe, sure, excuse my German, in 2021, episode in the December 2021 German TV station Tele5. Lastly, Anthony DeLongis, Keefe, would later star in another sword and sorcery-themed science fantasy fiction film, Master of the Universe, in 1987. That one's probably the, one of the most well-known, I guess, uh, I guess in terms of a classic uh, sword and sorcery fantasy films. But anyway, all right. That's all I have on trivia for this film, Warrior and the Sorceress. All right. Quote here. Kane, a.k.a. David Carradine. There are no lessons in death, my lord, only victory and defeat. Probably his best quote, if you ask me, in the entire film. But let's see what else we got here. Released September 7th, 1984, also known as simply just The Warrior. That's probably what they should have just titled it. Box office uh, budget was $2.8 and it opened and only grossed $574,000. So yeah, it definitely flopped. 
and a lot of these films did, but I still had fun nonetheless. Let's see what uh, <clears throat> Wiki has to say. It is a version of the classic Kurosawa film Yojimbo, as I already mentioned, in 1961. Notorious for Maria Soka spending much of the movie topless, yes she does, along with several other actresses and bit roles displaying varying degrees of nudity. It is also considered to be somewhat of a cult classic, and I can see that. It was the second entry in the series of ten films that Roger Corman produced, as I've mentioned, in Argentina during the 80s, first being Deathstalker. Hell yeah. So there's a lot of similarities in cinema... Uh, synonymous features throughout these films obviously uh roger corman produced similar uh titles similar cover poster taglines as well as clear-cut fucking dry edited versions of these films all pieced together entitled something else and sold so no wonder they're all similar makes sense originally scripted by william stout as dark sword of tor that sounds fucking awesome and then renamed to Kane of Dark Planet. However, Stout had stated that his title change had nothing to do with capitalizing on the worldwide popularity of David Carradine's character, Kwai Chang Kang, the protagonist of the 1970s adventure western TV show Kung Fu. Corman developed it for Millennium Pictures, the company he formed after he sold New World Pictures. Millennium subsequently renamed New Horizons. Okay. The outfit that Carradine uses for his character Kane is same he later wore in the 1991 B-movie post-apocalyptic action film Dune Warriors. In a rather obvious coincidence, Lucas Skew again played the antagonist villain role uh, Zeg in the, the latter film. Carradine says the director was obsessed by the body actress who plays the priestess Maria Soka, so he costumed her in a topless outfit. <laughs> That's funny. How about you just be naked in my film? Okay. <laughs> Everywhere you looked, there was this bare-breasted woman. Yeah, 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 pretty much, yeah. David Carradine liked the movie because of its swordplay and the fighting style he helped design, but says, don't expect a great movie. True, because the director quit during editing after a fight with Corman, which erupted because he had gone two weeks over schedule, meaning the editing was finished by two teams in two different countries. It's a little uneven. That's to say the least. It's an understatement, said Carradine of the film. Uh, receptively, Philadelphia Inquirer called it unashamedly sordid rehashing and retrashing of Akira Kurosawa's samurai classic Yojimbo via Sergio Leone's Fistful of Dollars with a little Star Wars and Conan the Barbarian tossed in for good measure. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a tongue-in-cheek version of that, yeah. The LA Times also noted similarities to Yojimbo said that the film had an awkward action, general air of determined viciousness, and Carradine expected so much overacting that it sometimes seems the new dramatic style is being forged. Footage of the film later turned up in Wizards of the Lost Kingdom 2. As I've already stated, they've just rehashed everything all together, just made these films basically one giant film is really what happened. That's all I have on Warrior and the Sorceress. I got two more for you guys. All right, I'm going to be talking about Conquest, 1983. A Lucio Fulci film. Yes, Lucio Fulci, uh, along with Dario Argento, Mario Bava, Lamberto Bava, and... Uh, you know, Luigi Cozzi in terms of being a giallo fort runners or front runners, excuse me, and four runners and so forth. And just creating such a lavish, fantastic version of uh, Italian horror. But he decided to venture into the uh, sword and sorcery and fantasy and mystical films as well. With 1983's Conquest rated R an hour and 28 minutes, 5.2 has a 2,800 reviews. Uh, it's the cover art here is like Conan meets fucking Star Wars. The poster is just fucking awesome. Once again, a power metal tribute, essentially. In a place beyond time comes a terrifying challenge beyond imagination is the uh, tagline here. And I, I have to buy it. I, all of these need to be framed and fucking just on a wall. 
It's incredible. Yeah. The film was, it was entertaining, <clears throat> goofy, uh, very dimly lit, basically in like 480 pixels. It was kind of hard to see, but I, I still had fun with it nonetheless. A young man armed with a magical bow and arrows embarks on a mystical journey through a mystical land to rid it of all evil and joins forces with an outlaw to take down an evil witch bent on claiming the magic bow for evil. Once again, gratuitous nudity. I mean, the evil witch who has a, a golden like mask over her face is fucking bare-breasted the whole time and is like holding snakes. Uh, very sexually just implicit. But anyway, directed by Lucio Fulci. Uh, what? Zombie originally, of course. Uh, House by the Cemetery. Uh, the Beyond. I mean, Lucio Fulci is just fantastic. Cat in the Brain. I mean, he did such great fucking phenomenal horror films. Anyway, written by Giovanni Di Clemente, of course, Gino Capone, as well as Jose Antonio de la Loma. You know, I mean, they're all wonderful people who just made such fun, iconic films. I don't really recognize anybody in this film because, I mean, a lot of his films that he did, I don't really recognize anybody to begin with, except maybe John Saxon, who occasionally shows up in some of these horror films, you know? But uh, Lucio Fulci also did Enigma, which is a classic. The cover art on that is fucking phenomenal. Anyway. Anyway, the uh, storyline here is the Italian sword and story uh, sorcery epic from Splatter director, of course. As I mentioned, Lucio Fulci, loosely inspired by the Hercules mythos about two warriors on a quest on a vegetable on a vengeful demon who throws all kinds of nasty creatures along the way to fill scenes of gory violence and include implicit nudity, as I've mentioned. Uh, trivially, let's take a look here. I didn't realize that uh, Lucio Fulci did it until I believe uh, the credits showed up. And I was like, okay. Oh, they only have one thing of trivia here. Alejandro Ulia, the film's cinematographer, used a fog machine and soft focus lines with special filters to give the film an ethereal ambiance. Well, you might have used a little too much fog because it was a little hard to see at times. But anyway, that was interesting. That makes sense why I was visually <laughs> unable to see some sequences at some times, but still had fun nonetheless. Released April 6, 1984 in the U.S., countries of origin, filmed in Italy, Spain, and Mexico, also known as Mace the Outcast. I think Conquest is better. Filmed in Sardinia, Italy. Produced by Clessi Cinematografia as well as Conquest Productions. He must have uh, created a new production company once this film came out. Nothing on a budget here. Let's see what Wikipedia has to say, though. A dark fantasy film uh, created by Lucio Fulci involving Ilias Andrea Ocapinci, a young man who battles monsters and mutants on his journey to manhood. Reviewed by both All Movie and the Monthly Film Bulletin, noted the film's low budget and derivative nature, while finding the film to be surprisingly entertaining despite its negative aspects. I can agree with that. And the uh, cover art here on Wikipedia is way drastically different. It, it doesn't do the film justice. I think the one on IMDb is much, much better, in my opinion. <coughs> Production-wise, the film's original Italian shooting title was Mace. The Outlaw. The film was an Italian-Spanish-Mexican co-production filmed in Mexico, as well as Rome, Italy. Fulci had signed a two-picture contract with the producer Giovanni Di Clemente, but after the contract had some disagreements during the making of Conquest, Fulci left immediately after shooting the film and refused to complete the contract. Di Clemente sued Fulci in court but lost, the judge uh, opinion that Fulci could not be compelled to work. Interesting. Release Conquest, released June 2nd, 1983 in Italy and August 19th in Spain. And it was uh, the Italian film historian Roberto Corti described the film as a box office bomb in Italy where it grossed less than 100 million uh, Italian lire. Conquest was later theatrically released in the U.S. in April of 84 and the U.K. May of 84 with a running time of 84 minutes. Later shown in Mexico August 15th of 85, a year later. Receptively, 
the monthly full bulletin, uh, low budget, deliriously, magpie mix of Conan the Barbarian, quest for fire and rage of the Lost Ark, with a few zombies, Fulci's fort thrown in for good measure. Of course. Reviews say that despite the excessive gore and manifested implausible plot and patchy special effects, the film was actually very enjoyable. I agree. The review uh, also commented on Claudio Simonetti's score. Yes. It didn't say The Goblin, but it did say Claudio Simonetti, and I was like, I knew I was in for a fucking phenomenal score. Finding it wonderfully inappropriate and reminiscent of Simonetti's work in Goblin, as I just mentioned, and scores of Deep Red and Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, it, it was like... Yeah, dude. It was its own kind of Claudio Simonetti. It was different compared to the horror aspect that he normally ensues within the uh, brain. You know, it was just very, very well done. It was almost like Pink Floyd's like on the run, but like overly done. It was phenomenal. Jeremy Wheeler, all movie, gave the film two stars out of five, while noting that even with a shoddy production value and downright embarrassing monster masks, it is what it is. A psychedelic C-grade fantasy flick by the master of Italian gore, done an incredibly strange time in a place in a movie history, Italy in the early 80s. Some call it junk, but those with their tongue planted firmly in cheek will call it schlock masterpiece. I agree. I, I thought it was fucking fun. I loved it. In his analysis of the film, Louis Paul described the film as far better than similar Italian sword and sorcery contrivances at the time. While criticizing part of the dialogue, he particularly praised the cinematography and the performance of the main actor, Jorge Rivero. All right, that's all I really got on Conquest. And lastly, I'm going to be talking about Arena. I've heard this one talked about on a Horror Movie Night podcast a couple months ago, if not maybe a year ago, they talked about it. And I've seen it on Tubi, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to check it out since I was already in the spectrum of discussing these uh, sword and sorcery fantasy films. But anyway, Arena, uh, 1989, PG-13, hour and 55 minutes. I didn't really feel like it was that long, but sure, whatever. 5.3 out of 2,900 reviews. And yeah, I'd give it that. It, it was like Star Wars meets like, I don't know, Fifth Element meets Bloodsport. It was its own kind of thing. The uh, cover art here says, Tonight Championship Grudge Master, Man versus Monster. For a thousand years, no human has been the champion. He wants to be the first. Arena. I, I thought it was fun. I, I enjoyed it. A human becomes an unlikely rising star in the biggest fighting tournament in the galaxies that's dominated by alien species. Directed by Peter Manugian. Let's see what else this guy did, because I don't recognize the directorial uh, aspect of this individual. He did The Dungeon Master, which I had talked about and watched before. He produced and managed uh, The Howling, which was awesome. He also directed The Eliminators. So I'm going to have to go into this guy's work and watch The Eliminators. I've definitely watched The Dungeon Master, and I love The Howling. The Howling is fun. In my perspective, it's not as good as American Marvel in London, but it's still good in its own right. The cover art in The Howling alone is fucking awesome, too. I think eventually I'll probably get American Marvel in London uh, tattooed, especially the uh, red wolf that they uh, have on it. I probably won't do, like, the full-on, like, wolf-wolf. Just the red one's really cool. Anyway, Pauling, uh, Pauling, what the fuck? Starring Paul Satterfield as Steve Armstrong. I've had a lot of English errors in this uh, episode. I apologize, people. <laughs> and uh, starring Armin Shimmerman as Weasel. And uh, Armin Shimmerman, even without the makeup, still manages to look like Weasel. So sorry that you look like that guy. Uh, Claudia Christian as Quinn. I thought Quinn was a much better looking actress than Shari Shadok as uh, Shay, uh, Jade is her name in this. I don't really recognize anybody. Oh, Jack Carter plays the announcer. Definitely recognize him. Ah, oh, man. 
All right, let's see what else we got here. Steve Armstrong storyline here. A human short order cook in a fast food restaurant on a star station where the most popular arena fighting tournament in a whole galaxy is held. The restaurant's sole waiter and Steve's boss is Shorty, a short forearmed scheming humanoid alien, reminiscent of Goro, but not nearly as uh, <laughs> vascular or muscular or even scary looking. He's a, basically a short little fat man that reminds me of a... Uh, the uh, shorthand cook uh, with the forearms from Attack of the Clones. Oh, one of them cloners. I don't remember his name, but anyway. Star Wars reference here, of course. Uh, Shorty shows gratitude and they become friends. However, without jobs, they are both kicked off the space station. Thankfully, Quinn, a female no-nonsense fighting promoter who's in quick need of new fighters, hears about Steve's fight with the alien guests and offers him a sponsorship. And he starts fighting from there, uh, essentially. Taglines here. Uh, championship grudge match. Man versus monster. Cool. <clears throat> Let me get some water here. I'm like running out of steam here. Sorry, guys. Ah, boy. Okay, trivially. Finished in 88, but not released in the U.S. until 1991. That makes sense because that's... I think IMDb goes literally like the year that it finished filming, not literally when it was released because the version I saw said 1991, not 88. But anyway... Mark Alimo and Armin Shimmerman would both go on to star in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, 1993, and Claudia Christian would go on to star in Babylon 5, 1994. That makes sense because she looked very, very familiar. I never watched the show, but I definitely remember seeing previews for it on TV, and I recognized the woman's face. Uh, the password to get into the casino is the same as the password for the speakeasy in the Marx Brothers film, Horse Feathers. Only nerd nerds who like comedy, I guess, would know that. And I like Marx Brothers films, but I guess I didn't make that... Uh, Symmetry there. The film takes place in 4038. I didn't even notice that either. At least one set is reused from robot jocks, and I definitely have heard of that as well. Anyway, that's all I got on trivia. Nothing really too crazy other than a Marx Brothers reference. That was pretty cool. Horse feathers. All right, let's see what we got here. Released September 18th, 1991. Country of origin filmed in Italy and uh, also filmed in Rome, Lazio, Italy. Produced by Empire Pictures and Altar Productions. Nothing on a budget here. Let's see what uh, Wikipedia has to say. Arena is in 1989, of course. As I've said, they filmed it and finished it then, not released till 91. American science fiction film directed by Peter Manugian, starring Paul Satterfield and Claudia Christian, as I've stated. Film produced by Erwin Yablons, featuring original music by Richard Band. That's cool. Uh, not much left here. Receptively, Lawrence Kahn, a variety called an, an above-average fantasy. I thought it was fun, man. Michael Weldon wrote in the Psychotronic Video Guide to Film, if you like TV shows like Battlestar Galactica, you might make it through this juvenile PG-13 science fiction comedy from Charles Band. It was a, you know, it was like the last, like, kind of Mohican from the 80s, even though it was released in the 90s, but filmed in the 80s. It was a, a blend of the two. It was, it was fun. It, it's... I enjoyed it. It was like Men in Black meets like Battlestar Galactica meets like Fifth Element. It, it was fun. I, I would recommend it. But there you have it. I talked about some reviews. Uh, I talked about two smutty films. Sorry in advance, as I've already stated. And I talked about some fantasy films. I had a lot of fun doing this episode. Sorry I was on a hiatus. I was out to sea. Now I'm back. I'll be back for about a month and a half or so. And hopefully get more time to do more uh, reviews on toys, video games, movies, all that stuff. So thank you for sticking around, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a good one.